0: This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for January 21st, 2021. Brave Browser supports a new file system, DNS cache poisoning, how law enforcement can get around encryption, more Bitcoin is lost, and configuring control center in Big Sur. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long.
1: Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm okay. We've got some interesting news and We were talking before the show, some of the stuff we're going to talk about is a little bit complicated, but Josh is going to use his skills and experience as an educator to simplify a lot of these things. We're going to talk about DNS, and we're going to talk about cache poisoning, and all sorts of fancy words. Uh, We want to start with something about Brave. Brave is one of your favorite web browsers, isn't it?
2: Yeah, Brave is a sort of—I guess you could call it—an alternative browser, right? It's—it's <laughs> uh, it's not one of the most popular browsers in the world. Of course, there's uh, Google Chrome, there's Microsoft Edge, there's uh, Firefox. Those are the the most popular browsers, and of course, Safari on on the Mac and iOS. But Brave is a multi-platform browser. And uh, they just got in the news because they are the first desktop browser to add native support for a new protocol. So there's uh, HTTP colon slash slash, the standard old unsecure web page connection. There's also HTTPS colon slash slash, which means you're connected to a secure web page. And... Uh, there have been various other protocols that certain browsers have implemented over time and, that have come and gone. FTP?
1: Yeah, FTP. Um,
2: Who remembers Gopher? Raise your hand. <laughs> Gopher, yeah. That uh, I, I know some browsers were still hanging out to Gopher for, for quite a while after it was no longer in wide use. Uh, and I think just fairly recently, I want to say, um, some browsers got rid of uh, FTP uh, being a supported protocol. But, yeah, so IPFS uh, stands for Interplanetary File System. (laughs) You're
1: serious, right? This isn't a joke. Totally
2: serious. This isn't like a Simpsons thing or something. (laughs) It sounds like it, but no, and it's not April Fool's Day yet. We've still got a few months for that one, but... Uh, yeah, interplanetary file system is a uh, is a peer to peer protocol. So it's similar to BitTorrent, and the idea behind it is that it's a decentralized storage system. So certain websites can make themselves available um, so that um, others can provide that site to you. Um, and some websites like Wikipedia actually have IPFS versions, and so. If for example you live in a country where they don't allow access to Wikipedia then theoretically you could use the IPFS protocol to load Wikipedia from somewhere other than their official servers.
1: Well why wouldn't those countries block the IPFS protocol <laughs> for Wikipedia then? It sounds like whack-a-mole but it doesn't sound that difficult.
2: It's yeah, it's a, it's a bit of whack-a-mole. So um Yeah. I, I don't know too much about IPFS, uh, as far as whether it uses a custom port, I'll have to look, look that up and see if I can figure that out. But, uh, if, if it uses a custom port, then, uh, generally protocols are fairly easy to block, especially if you live in a country where, um, they, you know, the state has control over all of the internet. Um, they can certainly put blocks in place to block, uh, particular ports or, uh, or essentially block protocols then.
1: Okay, I'll put a link in the show notes to some more information about interplanetary file system. I like that. So DNS, we spent a bit of time before the show talking about how we're going to explain this. DNS is complicated. The basic idea is it maps uh, an IP number to a domain name in text, So apple.com is whatever, dot, whatever, dot, whatever. It's kind of like, what's Apple's 1-800-BUY-APPLE or something? And so when you type the letters, it's the same as the numbers. If you still have letters on phones. um, So there are a lot of issues with DNS, and the NSA is warning enterprises to beware of a third-party DNS revolver. Now, Josh, you have five minutes to explain this without getting too complicated. All right. And by the way, good good
2: introduction, good reminder about what DNS is. So that, that's important to keep in mind because we're going to talk about a couple of things related to DNS. So third-party DNS resolvers. Now, if the NSA is warning that you shouldn't be using third-party DNS resolvers, that sounds scary. So if you've seen this headline, you might be wondering what they're talking about and should you trust that we really shouldn't be using third-party DNS. But here's the thing. They're talking specifically about Enterprise networks, so that means a a network at at work you know not your home network, uh, not public networks that you might be connected to in a cafe or a library or other places like that um, essentially what they 're talking about here is that maybe as an enterprise as a as a company you might have your network set up to enable certain additional features like maybe you might be using DNS for filtering purposes or other things like that. And if you are as an enterprise if you're allowing people to use other DNS besides the one that you're providing, then theoretically they could get around some filters that you're putting in place and and that could put them at risk.
1: Okay, so most of us we just have our DNS set to automatic. And in that case, the The router that our device connects to is going to tell the device which DNS server to use. And so it's therefore the router where the DNS server is defined, right?
2: Right. Yeah, exactly. And So there's multiple places where it could be defined. Um, It can be defined on your system, whether it's a Mac or iOS device. Um, It could be on the router that you're connected to or somewhere upstream from there. It, it, it kind of depends. Um, but there are a few different places where, where it could be coming from. But uh, but your DNS provider, if if you're on a home network, now that's that's a totally different situation. So the NSA basically is saying this is something that you should kind of try to avoid allowing users to do on your corporate network if you run a corporate network. But the thing is, if you're not running a corporate network, if you're trying to uh, have more private or more secure DNS lookups for for yourself, for your home network, for example, um, then you sh- really should be using a third-party DNS resolver, if not a VPN, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a minute.
1: So what's the main reason to do this? This is a security thing, right? To use a specific DNS resolver.
2: Yeah, it's so it's it, it can be multiple things. It could be for privacy purposes. Um, if you are using your internet service provider's DNS, most of the time your ISP is just going to be providing plain old standard DNS. Um, You don't really necessarily know what kind of DNS system they're using. You don't know whether uh, they're going to be blocking things. Uh, Very likely they are going to be logging everything that uh, every website that you are looking up or attempting to access. Um, And that's where this can be a privacy concern. Now, if you're using a third-party DNS provider, you want to make sure, ideally, that you're using one that supports um, DNS over HTTPS or DNS over TLS. So that's DOH So these DOT. are two
1: encrypted protocols.
2: Right. These are encrypted protocols. Um, if you uh, want to use a third-party encrypted DNS provider on your phone, um, an easy way to do that is to download the 1.1.1.1 app. <laughs> That's one particular DNS ser- service that offers those secure protocols, and it, it lets you choose which one you want to use, or it will automatically pick for you if you prefer.
1: Yeah, most of us don't really know which one we want to use, so I think just use the default <laughs> is best, right? Sure,
2: yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. Um, basically, the, the the main reason why you might want to use DNS over HTTPS is because it sort of hides itself uh, and and appears in, at, at a cursory glance, if someone's monitoring all the traffic on their network and trying to prevent you from using your own custom DNS, it's much more difficult for them to block DNS over HTTPS because it uses the standard port that HTTPS web traffic uses.
1: So DNS can be actually kind of dangerous if it gets attacked and spoofed. And we've got something... Uh, I think it's called DN spook or DNS spook. Uh, Josh thinks it's a DNS pook. uh, (laughs) Let's attackers poison DNS cache records. And so this sounds really complicated. And what I got from this is that if someone uses this attack, it's kind of like phishing, but there's no way you can protect yourself. So... We've always told you if you get a link in an email to click on a link to log into a site, hover your cursor or tap and hold on an iOS device to make sure it's correct. Look in the address bar of the browser to make sure the spelling's correct. But with this DNS spook attack, someone could actually misdirect your DNS search to a website that's fake, but that has the exact same address. So you can't protect yourself even if you're looking at the address.
2: Do I get that right?
1: Yeah, that's that's pretty much right.
2: Now, th- uh, there are certain sites that it would be much more difficult to spoof, um, in particular because Google Chrome has a built-in list of certain sites that must always go over HTTPS. Um and so in, in certain scenarios, it would be very difficult to really pull off a successful phishing attack using uh, poisoned cache. But there's a lot of things that you can do with DNS cache poisoning. Um, so, yes, when I first saw this name, so it's capital DNS and then lowercase P-O-O-Q. Um, and I, I'm, I'm pretty sure they probably want you to pronounce it DN spook or DNS spook, perhaps. Um, so it's got a nice logo, it's got a logo and that's, that's basically the reason why we've got to talk about it. Right. Cause it's a <laughs> it's the latest vulnerability <laughs> that's got a logo and a custom name. So why not? Oh boy. Okay. So DNS spook, um, the basic idea behind this is that it's, uh, another way to do DNS cache poisoning. And the reason why it's worth mentioning here is just that. Um, your ISP might not have updated their, their DNS servers yet. So if you are just using your standard home network, uh, the default DNS that your ISP provides, this might be a good opportunity to consider switching to something else. Now, there's DNS providers like uh, Cloudflare, which offers the 1.1.1.1 that we mentioned uh, we've we've talked before about Quad9. Quad9.net uh, is another um, provider that uh, attempts to block some malicious sites and things like that. Um, there's also services like OpenDNS, which uh, if you want to custom block things on your network, that can be kind of useful. The other thing though that you can do is you can use a VPN. Because when you're using a VPN, you're actually using the DNS that's provided by your VPN. Um, obviously, they're going to be using their own custom DNS most likely. And, uh, and that's going to be much better and more likely to be fully up to date and more secure than your local ISP.
1: And we'll link in the show notes to Private Internet Access, which is a VPN provided by our sister company, Private Internet Access. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how law enforcement can now get around your smartphone's encryption.
0: Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection. Net barrier, powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, personal backup to keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intigo.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intigo Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. And click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users made by the Mac security experts.
1: Okay, there have been a couple of articles uh, in recent days about how law enforcement gets around your smartphone's encryption. We'll link to one on Ars Technica. Um, Openings provided by iOS and Android security are there for those with the right tools. Now, we've been talking about some of these things for a while. Uh, GrayKey is one of them. It's a device that essentially does what? A brute force attack and can crack smartphones. But it seems that there are a lot more weaknesses than we had thought. Just one quote that I'm pulling out from the middle of the article. On iOS in particular, the infrastructure is in place for this hierarchical encryption that sounds really good. But I was definitely surprised to see then how much of it is unused. So the researcher says that the potential is there, but the operating systems don't extend encryption protections as far as they could. Now, we're used to Apple talking about how great the encryption is and, and what's, what's on your iPhone stays on your iPhone, right? Uh, but it turns out that's not the case. Well, I think Apple does a pretty good job for the most part, but
2: there are certain things that you should be aware of. We've mentioned before a, a lot of the things that you can do to help prevent people from being able to break into your phone. Um, and the idea here is that bad guys can use a lot of the same techniques that law enforcement can use. So you want to make sure that you're using the, the best protection that you can the, and multiple methods of trying to prevent people from being able to break into your phone.
1: Our goal here is not to tell people how to prevent law enforcement from getting into their phones, but it's more about telling people how to make sure that their phones are protected as much as possible.
2: Right. I mean, this is important because if you think about it, you know anyone on the street could uh, could run up and grab your phone from you. And you, if you think about it, you've got. All kinds of important, sensitive information probably on your phone. You've got um, you know phone numbers, addresses of all your loved ones and, and your coworkers, and lots of, of information like that. You may also have uh, sensitive information in your notes and other places. So you have to really uh, be careful about this. One of the things that is is important to do first of all is to make sure that you're not using. A four digit or even a six digit pin. The six digit pin is a little bit better. It gives you a lot more possibilities. So if someone is trying to just brute force, you know, crack into your phone by typing all the possible combinations, um, that's a million combinations, which can take a long time, all zeros through all nines. Um, but you know, people tend to use things like dates. Um, And if somebody in particular is really targeting you, they're going to have like probably a pretty good idea of what types of codes you might be using. Um, And in fact, they might have even watched over your shoulder to watch you type something in. And even if they kind of get one or two numbers off, they can get pretty close just by observing what you're typing.
1: We'll link in the show notes to an article I wrote last August. If hackers crack a six-digit iPhone passcode, they can get all your passwords. And this was a chilling story that, well, it got me to change my passcode from six digits to I won't tell you how many. And we explained in the article how to make the change. Um, it's really important to not use a simple PIN. Right.
2: Um, so you can customize it. You can choose a longer passcode. That's definitely the best thing to do if you're concerned about someone potentially being able to break into your phone. Um, So that's one thing. Um, Another thing that that is important to do is to make sure that you're using a recent enough iPhone. Uh, We've talked about this before that uh, an iPhone 10, that's the iPhone with the X after it, Roman numeral 10, and the iPhone 8, which both came out the same year, and any phones before that are all vulnerable to um, a particular attack that um, cannot be patched in iOS software or firmware updates. So um, that makes those devices easier to crack into um, if somebody has the right tools or the willingness to um, to take the time to, to, uh, to go through the process to break into your device. It is possible to do.
1: What I find interesting is at the end of this article, uh, they point out that Researchers at the nonprofit Upturn found nearly 50,000 examples of U.S. police in all 50 states using mobile device forensics tools to get access to smartphone data between 2015 and 2019. Now, if you remember just a few years ago, there was this big battle between the FBI and Apple to crack a smartphone after a a shooting in San Bernardino. Yet, if 50,000 examples of police in all 50 states and this is just what they were able to find out. This means that these devices are now pretty much available to police anywhere. You can imagine if police can get a hold of them, then criminals can get a hold of them, too. Absolutely. Um, and, of course, it's much more difficult,
2: theoretically, for a criminal to, to get a hold of one of these types of devices. But um, it's not impossible. Um, And so that is something that one should be a a little bit concerned about. The other thing, and and by the way, they don't really specifically mention that you want to have like an iPhone XS or XR or a newer model within this Ars Technica article that we're, we're referring to here. That is an additional thing that's important to know. Um, now, another thing they do cover in the article, though, is that you want to make sure that you're using the latest version of your operating system. Um, this is uh, difficult to do sometimes on Android because, well, Android is sort of notorious for having a an ecosystem where you've got some phones that have to be updated by the manufacturer, and so they've got their own custom versions of Android often and you got to wait for them to release their custom versions and sometimes they don't release versions of Android for a phone that's a couple years old cuz they want you to buy the latest phone um on iOS this is a much better situation and in in most cases If you've got a phone from the last several years, you can still get a new uh, updated version of iOS for it. So make sure that when Apple does release a new version of iOS, that you update to it relatively quickly, um, because that will also protect you from a lot of known vulnerabilities that are then going to be usable by attackers to break into phones.
1: One thing worth noting about Android is there is a version of Android called Android One, Android One comes with certain phones, and if you buy a phone with Android One, you're guaranteed to get upgrades for at least two years. I'll put a link in the show notes to the Android One website. Most of the phones are Nokia phones. Nokia is owned by Microsoft. Is that it?
2: I believe so, yeah.
1: Yeah, so it's mostly Microsoft phones. Remember Microsoft when they had their own phone? I have one of these that I bought a few years ago. It was relatively inexpensive. It's probably too old to get updates, but if you're really concerned about Android and updates, then you might want to consider going for one of these phones rather than the latest Samsung or whichever. These aren't the high-end flagship phones. They're relatively inexpensive. It looks like the most expensive one I see here on the UK website is £500, so that's half the price of an iPhone.
2: Of course, you could also just get an iPhone. (laughs)
1: <laughs> you could, that'd probably be easier, but no, some people need to use Android. Maybe their business requires they use Android or, you know, there's some sort of policy sure. or whatever, but right. um, I think it's an interesting option because when I did buy one, it was relatively cheap. It was about a hundred pounds and it was a pretty decent phone, but I should get it out of my phone drawer and charge it one of these days because <laughs> I haven't used it in a while.
2: By the way, um, a lot of people assume that you have to pay quite a bit of money to get an iPhone, but, but Apple actually does sell the second generation, an iPhone SE for $399, uh, $399 US, um, which is actually really reasonable. I mean, a lot of the hardware in it is a little bit older, but they do have last year's processor in it. Um, So it's not a bad phone uh, at a really good price, actually. So, um, you know, if if cost is a big, if that's been a factor preventing you from getting an iPhone in the past, um, it's certainly a lot more
1: affordable today than it ever has been before. Okay, so this is one of these stories that I see, and they make me snicker a little bit. Last episode, we talked about someone who, what, he lost $220 million worth of Bitcoin because he couldn't remember the password. Well, this time, we've got a story. It's here in the UK. Someone has, on a hard drive that he threw out in 2013... He has a Bitcoin wallet. 2013, that's seven years ago, almost eight years ago. And apparently it contains about 200 million pounds worth of Bitcoin. That's about $260 million. It's even more than last week's Bitcoin loser, I guess. (laughs) Now, I would assume when the guy tossed it in 2013, um, he, he accidentally threw out one hard drive instead of another one. Back then, it was probably worth a few hundred pounds, so he didn't care about it. It's in a um, landfill. Uh, He he lives in the town of Newport in the UK. It's in the landfill, and he wants the town council to dig it up. And he says, if you find it, I'll give you 25% of it. So potentially 50 million pounds. He's pretty sure of having traced the records for the trash in the landfill that he knows. So he knows pretty much where in the landfill it's located, because they they keep track of serial numbers of of trash cans here. Um, But the town council said, no, we're not going to do that. Because if they don't find it, or if he can't get the Bitcoin, he's not going to give them anything. And this could cost a lot of money. And it's probably also a a safety issue that if they're digging up stuff from the landfill, it could be dangerous. Boys and girls, just don't throw away hard drives if it's got your Bitcoin. Bitcoin wallet and you know, make copies of all that. If you've got millions of dollars or millions of pounds worth of Bitcoin, God, get a safety deposit box, write things down on paper and put them in there.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really kind of funny that we have this kind of story a couple of weeks in a row. But yeah, I mean, when you're talking about things that are worth millions of dollars now, in 2013, uh, this wasn't worth nearly as much as it is now. Um, he did say that he had two identical hard drives and he says he threw out the wrong one. Um, well, okay. But <laughs> the, the, it is very interesting. And I do, it does make you wonder, like, how much of mined Bitcoins have been lost or thrown out accidentally or people have lost passwords. Well, that
1: article last week said something like 20% of Bitcoins have been lost. Yeah. I,
2: I don't know how they come up with that number, but it's. Either way. I mean, regardless, it's interesting. Uh, and yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are a lot of people who have potentially lost a lot of money because either they didn't realize that it was going to be worth so much someday, and they just kind of didn't care about it and got rid of it, but or uh, accidentally got rid of it.
1: Finally, I want to talk about a story I wrote in November we haven't discussed on the podcast. It's how to configure and use Control Center in macOS Big Sur. And We didn't really do a lot of discussion about the Big Sur features yet on the podcast. This is one that I find really useful. Um, Control Center has been in iOS for a long time. You take your iOS device, you swipe down from the top right, and you get all these buttons. And I'm looking at my iPhone, and there's lots of buttons because I have a bunch of smart lights, and so they get added to the thing. But it means that you get quick access to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth and do not disturb and a whole lot of features like that. Uh, Well, on macOS Big Sur, you have a similar control center. So if you're looking at your menu bar, it's that little thing that looks like two toggle switches. Is that the best way to describe it? Uh, Up in the menu bar, you click that and you get a number of uh, buttons. You get Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, AirDrop. You get Do Not Disturb, Screen Mirroring, Display, that's Brightness, Sound, that's Volume. And the Now Playing widget is there. So if you're playing music, um, you'll see what's playing. Now, I find this really useful because I don't know about you, but I got a lot of things in the menu bar. Whether it's the built-in date and time, or the Dropbox, uh, OneDrive, and and other things like that, or a utility I use called iStat Menus, it gives me a lot of information. Um, there's a lot in the menu bar, and it's very rare that I need to turn off Wi-Fi or Bluetooth, but every once in a while I do. And it's easier to have quick access to this here than to have to go into the preferences. Um, another thing that I find really useful is to have that now playing. So if I'm listening to music and I want to pause without going to the music app, uh, that's a quick way to do it.
2: Yeah, it's it's pretty handy. It looks very similar to uh, the, the iOS menu. By the way, so a, cu- a couple of little notes here. So you mentioned that that icon on macOS looks like a couple of toggle switches. So one yeah. is facing one direction, the other's facing the opposite direction, and one looks more black and the other looks more white, and it'll be inverted. It's the yin-yang of toggle <laughs> switches. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, it, and the colors will be inverted depending on whether you're in dark mode or not. And also, you mentioned that if you swipe down from the top right on your phone, that's how you get to the control center. If you have an older model phone or, or a phone that doesn't have a face ID, you actually swipe up from the bottom, if
1: I remember you correctly. You swipe up from the bottom. I forgot that. Yeah.
2: Yeah, so um so could be a little bit different depending on on what you're using, but um yeah, this is really handy. I do like that Apple has uh, added this to Big Sur. It seems like um something that makes a lot of sense. It actually makes the menu bar look a lot cleaner because previously you had uh separate icons up there for, you know, for Wi-Fi and for Bluetooth and uh, and various other things that are now all included underneath the control center.
1: So when you click this control center display, let's say if you click on Wi-Fi, it opens up another dialogue for Wi-Fi. So it'll let you turn Wi-Fi on and off. It'll let you choose a network. It'll let you look for other networks, open network preferences, etc. cetera. If you click airdrop, then you see the different options Um, So all of these little, I guess, buttons in Control Center go to further options, which you might get on the iPhone by pressing and holding. If you want to configure Control Center, you have some options in the dock and menu bar preference pane of system preferences. What you can do with this is you can choose, for some of the devices, which ones will also show in the menu bar, because you might want some of them to show in the menu bar. And there are a couple of other modules that you can choose optionally, and then there are also some other controls for the menu bar. Now, I'm just going to plug a utility that I've been using for a couple of years that I really like. It's called Bartender. Uh, What it does is it allows you to choose the menu extras that are visible in your menu bar, and when you hover your... Cursor over the menu bar, it displays all the rest. So I've got, I don't know, a dozen that are visible. And when I hover the cursor, I've got 10 more for things that I don't need often. For instance, 1Password, I don't need visible all the time. Um, Skype's icon, whenever we launch Skype uh, for a podcast, it wants to put its icon in the menu bar. And I don't really need it, so it's hidden. Bartender is a really useful tool. You can configure uh, what gets displayed in the menu bar and when. The menu bar is a great information device, but it's getting overloaded. Now, Josh, you remember Control Strip, don't you? Back in Mac OS 7, System 7?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was, I
1: think, still around uh, all the way through Mac OS 9. So Control Strip was something that showed up at the bottom of the display, and you could click something to make it expand or to hide, and you just have a little tab at the bottom left corner of the display. And it was very similar. You controlled things the way we do now from the menu bar.
2: Right yeah you could actually i remember move it around so if you wanted it to be uh it just had to always be pinned to the to the uh, left side or
1: or could you also pin it to the yeah. right too i'm trying to remember i don't remember but but it was it was practical yeah yeah i'll see if I can find a screenshot if so i'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who doesn 't know control strip it's clear that uh the menu bar today was inspired by control strip, and control strip could also have third party modules. I think there was even one for RAM Doubler to turn it on and off. Remember RAM Doubler back in the day? Yep. The most useful utility. I had that PowerBook 100 that had one megabyte of RAM, and I bought RAM Doubler, and it gave me two megabytes of RAM. Amazing. Virtually. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Enough nostalgia for today. Check out Control Center if you haven't looked at it. Um, Check out the settings in System Preferences. And until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right. Stay secure.
0: Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. And if you'd be so kind, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com.